On today's 51%, we speak with one of the people responsible for bringing Hollywood to upstate New York. I'm kind of like the worker bee. I stay behind the scenes. And we meet a producer of HBO's new series, The Gilded Age, which was filming this spring in New York's capital region. Oh my God, I can't wait for people to see the show. I'm Jackie Orchard, and this is 51%. We've got Nathan Lane, and we've got Christine Baranski, and we've got Cynthia Nixon, and we've got um, Danae Benton, and it's a fantastic, a lot, a lot of Tony winners or nominees, I think. Holly Ryman is a producer on HBO's new series, The Gilded Age. It's set in 1882. Um, it's sort of the beginning of, you know, uh, this sort of amazing time in history which quite admittedly I didn't know a whole lot about before I got involved in this project, where, you know, industry and, you know, railroads and all of these businesses were sort of just like taking off and there became people with an enormous amount of wealth. So, um, and there were not a lot of checks and balances yet and it was just like insane wealth. So they were building mansions and they were making homes and there were, and there was new money and old money. So uh, that is sort of a, a loose premise of the show is, there is a family that has new money and they're they're ready to be in society and do all the things and then there's a family that's that's from the old money and they're very quite proud of that and they're not really ready to accept the new folks. So there's a little bit of drama there. Ryman and I are sitting in Riverfront Park in Troy, New York. They filmed just a block away, transforming storefronts into hat boutiques and cigar shops from 1800s New York City. Ryman says the scenery was her favorite part of filming. It's gorgeous. Oh my God, I can't wait for people to see the show. It's just the costumes, the sets, it's just literally stunning. It's really, really beautiful. And the best part? The horses were one of my favorite things. They're just beautiful. And I mean, we were really lucky. We've been working with this group of folks, wranglers and horses and carriages from the beginning. And uh, they've been fantastic. And like, you get to know their names and you get to know their personalities. And, you know, they're, you know, our actors too. Ryman says Troy was the perfect location to shoot. We were scouting different locations, including Albany, but Troy just has a lot of architecture from the period that is largely untouched, and that just is is the main reason. You know, New York City, Brooklyn, those places, it's so hard to navigate A through them anymore with, and there's a lot of monitored pieces mixed in. It's just hard to find those chunks of time and space that, that are controllable and that look proper. So uh, really here it was, and, and the city has been amazing um, as far as like helping us lock down streets so we can r run horses and carriages and put dirt down and do all the things we need to do to make everything safe for everybody and still make it look good, take down signs. I mean, we had to, you know, there's a lot of work that went into it and the city was really fantastic. So uh, definitely happy we came here and, and got to see all the beautiful houses and, you know, they have to be touched up a little bit from BFX here and there, but for the most part, I mean, this, the structures are just gorgeous. Ryman does not have a cameo in the Gilded Age, but if you look closely, she does have her own sign in the scenery. Sometimes we sneak names uh, into the signs for the crew, like only the crew really knows. So if, like the names around uh, a town on the signs are a lot of crew members' last names. Ryman is a line producer. I'm basically in charge of the budget uh, overseeing the budget, the schedule, um, and sort of the management of the people. 
Ryman says the COVID-19 pandemic is a tough time to be running logistics for a major HBO series. How to do it, how to do it safely, you know, getting air purifiers and what, you know, checking people in and what different things can we do to make, you know, separating people six feet apart at lunch so they can take their masks off. And that in and of itself, just the amount of space we needed to get people ready and to feed people was tremendous. We had to have huge tents, like almost everywhere we went because you you would cram people together on a, on a, you know, on a folding table before and it didn't matter how many people were sitting together. And now we had to have thousands and thousands of extra square feet of space which not only takes time and energy to find, but money to pay for it. Ryman says the cost of shutting down production is astronomical. You know at any moment somebody could get knocked out, and if it's an actor, you try to shoot anything you can shoot without them. But, you know, we have a couple of characters who are in most everything, and so if you lose one of them for two weeks, you would have to shut down. Um, And, yeah, it's, you know, millions of dollars. Ryman says they went above and beyond CDC recommendations. A lot of testing, uh, cast tested every day they worked and before they worked. Um, and then also any rehearsal, they would wear a mask. Like any time we would travel them in vans that had plastic shields and we wouldn't let more than two people in the van and like, the, you know, the drivers were tested. Ryman says there's no one conventional way to land this kind of job. I personally came up through the production office, so I came up more from, by chance, but I came up uh, that way and sort of became learned how to manage the office, and then I became a production manager, um, which was really more of a, you know, day-to-day detail, um, of managing the crew and the money and the equipment and things like that, and then went into producing from there. Ryman went to college at George Washington University in D.C. in 1990. Got a theater degree, and then uh, a couple years in, in theater was just sort of a rough go financially, like, waitressing during the day, doing, you know, theater at night, and I decided to maybe get into something else in entertainment, and I didn't know what I wanted to do, so I did took a continuing ed program at NYU in film, did that for three months, and I thought I wanted to be a director of photography, so I started working low-budget, no-budget shows um, as a camera assistant. From there, Ryman got an internship at Castle Rock in an office for a Rob Reiner movie called North in 1993. She says she started to appreciate the business side of showbiz. They hired me on halfway through. They started paying me as a production assistant. Um, and I just kind of looked down every path that could possibly be. And I, the only place I wanted to wind up was producer. So um, it wasn't a straight shot, but, you know, I, I knew that. So it was. I kind of enjoyed and learned from everything I ever did. Ryman says back in those days, interns were unpaid. So I worked for like lunch and, you know, I worked in the office, production office, and I, um, you know, answered phones and I took messages and I copied papers and I made coffee and I organized, you know, I mean, I did all the menial things that you do when you start out in our business. Ryman has been involved in a lot of productions. I worked on things like North and IQ and Legend of Bagger Vance and, you know, sort of some of the larger sort of movies back in the 90s um, that were made or based in New York. Um, And then, uh, segue slightly, I took a couple years off. I have two children. I took a couple years off to have my kids. And then I came back in. I started um, kind of managing more at that point, going into more indie kind of movies. I did things like The Funeral, and I did um, It's it's Kind of a Funny Story, and I did um, sort of like lower-budget projects to kind of build my way back up to be trusted with money. (laughs) 
And then, and then I started getting into stunt stuff, and I started doing second unit big stunt movies, like for, um, I did something called Premium Rush, and I did um, second unit for Men in Black 3, I did Men in, uh, second unit, which is all the stunt and action stuff for Amazing Spider-Man 2, um, and then I started doing the John Wick's movie. I did John Wick 1 and John Wick 2. Um, so it was all the stunt stuff. Just before coming to Troy, Ryman was working with Marvel. She started in 2017, the year Marvel released Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, Spider-Man Homecoming, and Thor Ragnarok. I came to Marvel Television in New York, and they had a whole system here where they were making five different shows. Uh, Luke Cage, Jessica Jones, um, uh, Iron Fist, Daredevil, and uh, The Punisher. If you respect yourself enough to take a look. A manual that tells you what to do when your mother, who's been dead for 17 years, comes back and is a mass murderer. I think that the people I kill need killing. That's what I think. You left men hanging from meat hooks. It got off easy, in my opinion. They were just doing one after the other after the other. They were always doing like two at once. It was quite the machine. Ryman also worked on The Defenders as the production manager and went on to become the VP of production at Marvel, now part of Disney, for two years. So I went from sort of managing one to like overseeing all five of them at once. So that was a good two years. And then they kind of dissolved the TV unit and became part of uh, the film unit and went out to LA. But um, that was a great experience. With Hollywood directors and producers being accused of sexual harassment in the workplace in recent years and the uprising of the Me Too movement, I asked Ryman if she ever felt uncomfortable at work because of a man's advances or comments. A little bit. You know, I've always been sort of headstrong as far as, like, not putting much stock in that, um, wearing what I want to wear, doing what I want to do, not worrying about looking feminine or trying to be like a man. I just kind of always had a sort of a strange sense of confidence. Um, but yeah, of course you do butt up against it. You see it happen to other people. You try to, and once you get into management, you have the added um, sort of responsibility sometimes of getting into HR conversations with people um, and trying to make sure that doesn't happen on your set or how to solve it. Um, and sure, there's been instances, especially on some of these larger, you know, sort of stunt-driven shows, they're very, there's a lot of men in the room. <laughs> I mean, there were instances where there were 12 of us all making decisions and I was the only female. Um, and that's fine, um, you know, uh, you know, but it, it sometimes feels a little lopsided. And, um, but honestly, you know, for whatever reason, um, I, I just... I just never let it get to my head, and I was fortunate enough not to have any sort of bad interactions personally um, with, with anyone in sort of... There's always a little bit of that underlying. Ryman says the instances of inappropriate behavior she witnessed were less often on set and usually in the office. There's someone who's making comments to someone else that might feel inappropriate, or you know, there are, uh, you know, in a couple of instances, there were older men and younger women, and, and, and they were there were comments made to people that the younger women didn't feel comfortable with and how you delicately go in there and try to try to stop that from happening and educating honestly people who who have maybe grown up in a time where these things weren't as uh as 
something that you talked about as much or tried to solve. It was just like, oh, that's just, you know, whoever <laughs> doing whatever they do, you know. And, and now it's, there's a lot more consciousness, thankfully, uh, as a mother of two uh, young ladies, um, who, you know, that, that that's just not acceptable. And so um, those, are, are, those conversations aren't enjoyable, but I think they're important. Ryman says the industry is improving. There are more women in the room now. When I first started, I would say the women who had any sort of sense of power had devoted their lives to it, didn't have families, like couldn't. I think there's been a lot of shift um, over the past 20, 30 years of like a little more equality with what the expectations are of men and women. Ryman says when she educates crew members, they take it seriously. When someone of a position of power and employment comes to you and tells you your behavior has been noticed and is not appropriate and this can affect whether or not you continue to work with us or, or what our opinion is of you and, you know, that that you need to work on this, people take it seriously. Now, if you're like me and have no idea how a film set is laid out, Ryman breaks it down. The first person you probably run into is a production assistant uh, with a walkie and looking very worried and <laughs> will be doing what they call a lockup. It's basically the job to keep people who aren't on the show sort of out of the shot, away from the drama, you know, safe and away from the, the project, We're trying to control the perimeter. There's a lot of people, then on the inside, the very core, uh, right around camera, right around um, the actors, it's going to be the director, it's going to be sometimes the producer, it'll be the ADs, the assistant directors, who are really sort of keeping the cadence of the day going and sort of calling the shots and, you know, you know, moving on from one shot to the other, surrounded by technicians who are cameramen, who are video men, who are sound men, who are recording all of this. And then the sort of middle layer of all of that is your grips, electrics. It's your, it's all the people who are controlling the light and moving the lights around and sort of making each shot beautiful. So there's a sort of a flurry of activity in between setups where everybody's scrambling around. And then while we're shooting, it's dead silent, we're recording, nobody's moving, we're all just waiting for the next thing. So there's a very sort of ebb and flow to a, to a production, to a film set. Of all those positions, Ryman says not many are filled by women. It's getting better. Um, I would say um, our camera department on our show is, is has 30% women, um, whereas when I first started in this business, it was rare. Um, to have anyone really honest, honestly in something like the camera department or the group department. In the group department, uh, if you don't know, basically lifts all the heavy stuff. Um, and so, you know, traditionally that's been more of a male role, electricians. We probably have maybe, I don't know, 15 to 20% women in those departments on our show. That's sort of indicative of the business in general. The, the ceiling is being broken. Things are happening, but it's, it's still not where it should be. Ryman says female producers are on the rise, but not everywhere. I would say in New York, more so than someplace like L.A. Um, I don't know 100% why that is, but I feel like that's certainly gotten better, too. Like, when I first started, there were a fair amount of, decent amount of women who were production managers who were, like, managing money but weren't, like, the boss boss, you know? And now that has definitely started to change. Um, like, it was always the men. <laughs> <laughs> who were the boss boss, who were the producers, they were typically uh, male. Um, but that is definitely changing. Ryman says more women entered the scene in the early 2000s. The tax incentive started and the, and the stages started being built and there started being more and more shows in New York. It, you know, it, there was just the demand was higher. And so it became more opportunity for people to, to take that next step and to fill roles they might not have been offered before.
So it was really, it was really about volume of work. So it came opportunities for s some women who might not have had it before because they needed capable people. And I think studios started realizing, oh, there they are. <laughs> Ryman has mainly worked in New York City for the past 20 years and lives on Long Island. She says most producers and crew are freelance, hired guns, she calls it. She says she's already planning on working on season two of The Gilded Age, though, because she says HBO is fantastic to work with. To find out how someone like Ryman ends up in Troy to film a major HBO series, I sat down with the film commissioner for neighboring Albany County, Deb Gedeke, who coordinated it. Basically, I market our city, our destination, to production companies to come here and film. And then once they come here uh, and they decide they want to film here, I connect them with all the services, the resources, and the community partners they would need to move forward with their project. Gedeke says she's brought in film productions like Angelina Jolie's Salt and Will Ferrell's The Other Guys. If I were a lion and you were a tuna, I would swim out in the middle of the ocean and freaking eat you. Coming up against a full-grown 800-pound tuna with his 20 or 30 friends, you lose that battle. You lose that battle nine times out of ten. She says unlike other cities, production companies like filming here because there's a single point of contact for everything they might want. Get a key. My special event individual that I work with, with the Albany Police Department, actually oversees the entire magnitude of the project. So whether there is a request for the Department of General Services in the city or a request for the Water Department, this gentleman that I work with, he makes that all happen. I know that in a lot of other cities, there isn't one point of contact. Uh, a good example of that is uh, we're currently working with HBO White House Plumbers and they came last Friday and they were talking to our police department and they were, well, we need this, we need the parking meter covered, we need the bus stop covered. And the Albany PD contact was like, I can take care of all of that. And the gentleman turned around to me and said, oh my gosh, this is so much easier. Usually we have to go to 20 different departments. I think that's a huge selling point for our destination. And also we're very cost effective. They're all about time and money. And so uh, we really uh, we really adhere to our timeline and to, their, to whatever their budget is. Ryman agrees. The city's help with the streets and, you know, controlling and the police and everybody in this town were so accommodating um, that it made our lives so much easier. And it made it possible to do what we needed to do. So that was a huge, uh, I mean, you know, huge bonus. And I would say, um, you know, when we tried to work with the local uh, businesses and not shut them down, covered up their windows, but we tried to make sure that everybody knew they were still open. Um, but I think ultimately it's the partnership um, with the government agencies that were really key in, in making it work as well as it did. Ryman says the experience was so good, they want to come back for season two. I would say that is a very good bet. <laughs> According to the Association of Film Commissioners International, a TV series or film production can bring in $125,000 to $165,000 per day. 
New York State has also continued generous tax credits for film productions. Gedeke says The Gilded Age was in Troy for about seven weeks and consumed over 5,000 sleeping room nights in Albany County alone. So with this pandemic and all of our hotels being empty, you can imagine the boost that that's going to give. Gedeke says it's not just the hospitality industry that gets a boost from film crews. She says productions hire locally for many positions on set with her encouragement and referrals. PAs, production assistants, makeup, hair, lighting, key, grip, they want to try to hire as many locals as they can because they know again that that benefits the community and they want to come back. Ryman says they took Gedeke's advice. We hired a lot of sort of um, production assistants, um, obviously the background artists. We hired, um, you know, security, all the people that we could hire and could find. Um, I would love to have hired more sort of, um, you know, union labor. There just isn't a huge uh, group here existing, um, just because I don't know if it, there's year-round employment. But, yeah, whenever we could, we did. Um, but, yeah. I think we definitely tried to tap into as much local labor as we could. Ryman says it felt like they booked up the whole town for a month. Maybe 150 people in prep, another 150 on our regular crew, plus on our big days we probably bought another 100 people, and then the background, our days, our bigger days with a background artists was probably 200. So, you know, it's, it's you know, five, six, seven, seven fifty. I mean, on their big, big days, um, but a lot. A lot. And we, I think we were spread out over 10 different hotels between Troy and Albany. Um, so we had, to, in fact, yeah, we maxed out all the hotels we could get in Troy. And then we had a couple of hotels, um, more like sort of long-term stay type hotels along the way. And then we had a couple of ones in Albany proper. But Albany's so close. It really 15 minutes. It's fine to shuttle back and forth. Ryman says the background actors, extras for the Gilded Age, were almost all local. So those were hundreds of people over the course of the month. So and then what we did logistically because of the costumes and fittings and how complicated it is to to get people tailored exactly to their outfits, we, we use the same people for two, three different looks. So, you know, you've got someone who's like a someone on the street selling a newspaper one day, could be the next day in a top hat. Um, so the numbers would have been higher if we used different people for all of that. But, but logistics and, 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 you know, sanity sort of dictated that we used several people over and over again. But, but all like mostly local, local musicians, um, you know, which was pretty fantastic. And then and then, yeah, the local crew crew, I don't know, maybe 50. Gedeke says she receives up to 50 filming inquiries a month, and she's worked with about 15 different companies now, including FX, The History Channel, Discovery Channel, and HBO. But she says when she's on the job, she isn't vying for favors with the stars. I'm kind of like the worker bee. I stay behind the scenes. I don't ask for pictures or selfies of anybody. I, I really just want to make those things happen behind the scenes. I try to stay humble with it and really make them the top dog. Gedeke says film is definitely a male-dominated industry. A lot of times in the meetings that I'm at, I'm usually the only female. You know, that's part of that meeting. Even, even a lot of the community departments that we work with, it's just part of the job. But I never let that bother me. I'm always treated as an equal. Um, I think that if you go in, and I don't want to say prove yourself, 
But I think if people are respectful of what you do and you know that, and they know that you have their best interests, I think it eventually all works out. Gedeke is 67. Growing up, she loved watching South Pacific and the Ten Commandments. I'm gonna wash that man right out of my hair. I'm gonna wash that man right out of my hair. I'm gonna wash that man right out of my hair and send him on his way. Get the picture? But it wasn't her love of films that brought her to her current position, mostly her love of people and making connections. Gedeke is also the convention services manager for Discover Albany. She's been in the event planning industry for 16 years. And Gedeke says if you look around on a film set, most likely the high-power seats, director, producer, writer, are men. And on the few occasions a woman is in a seat of power, she says people assume they're an assistant or a makeup artist. I've spoken to a couple of women and even seen it myself that are you know, a producer or a director with a project, but they they share with me when they go on set, a lot of times people think they're the PAs or the people that are there to get coffee. And I'm hoping that perception will change. Gedeke says the deck may be stacked against women, but we just have to continue to prove ourselves. I also think it's important to promote and uplift women in general as a woman. Nothing drives me crazier than to see women be catty with each other. Oh my gosh, there's enough of that going on in the world. We don't need to do it to each other. So yes, we need to be supportive of each other. According to San Diego State University's Center for the Study of Women in Television and Film, in 1998, 24% of working producers were women. In 2019, that number had only increased to 27%. In 1998, only 4% of directors were women, and in 2019, that only inched up to 13%. But there is some hope. In the top 100 grossing films of 2020, 16% had female directors, up from only 4% in 2018. Growing up, I would watch the -the behind-the-scenes director's commentary of all my favorite films, and I don't remember ever seeing one with a woman doing the talking. I honestly assumed that women, if they were pretty and went to lots of auditions, might get to end up in front of the camera. I wish it had been more obvious that if she works hard, is organized, and knows how to lead, she can end up behind it. I was standing around like one of those girls I had seen in a movie. The whole world was a movie back then. I had my sunglasses on, I wanted to be seen without seeing Shiloh or Lita. I wasn't really in it. I didn't really get it. Thanks for joining us for this week's 51%. Thanks to our story editor, Ian Pickus. Thanks to Tina Rennick and Liz Hill for production assistance. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Shartok. Our theme music is Lolita by Albany-based artist Girl Blue. 
51% is a national production of Northeast Public Radio. If you'd like to hear this episode again or share it with your friends, sign up for our podcast or visit WAMC.org. And don't forget, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at 51% Radio. I'm your host, Jackie Orchard. Until next week, remember, the future is fearless.